Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and by Tony Hodson of the Coach's Voice platform. This week's guest is Nottingham Forest manager Steve Cooper, who's living with the madness of the scramble to avoid relegation. As the pressure intensifies, panic takes hold. Somehow... Sam Allardyce is back for the final four games of the season at Leeds. He could pick up a cool three million pounds for that little gig, but surely appointing him, Johnny, is the ultimate admission of failure. Yeah, I, I think there's no other way to put it, Mike, actually. I mean, it's, it's a monumental failure of what was quite a long-term project under Victor Orta and Angus Kinnear, the chief exec, who had been empowered to run the club by Ravriziani, the, the the owner. And and you only need to look at the arc that Leeds have managed to trace somehow from Marcello Bielsa to Sam Allardyce in about 15 months. I mean, that just putting those two figures together and saying a club's going to go from A to B in this time span, that's enough to tell you that that's some kind of enormous meltdown in terms of philosophy you know, via Jesse March, via Michael Scabala, and via Javi Gracia. It is one of the craziest progressions outside of Watford. But actually, I, I say that, but <clears throat> Watford's coaches, in a way, are, are kind of all of a sort of similar level. And they're all short-term guys when they come in. They all know that. So there's the, the, in, in a weird way, there's a kind of, there's a kind of integrity to that philosophy, uh, mad integrity, but people know what's happening. Whereas Leeds have appointed different guys at different times saying that they were going to be the future, the long-term philosophy, and and have, have, have just pivoted away from it now quite spectacularly with 68-year-old Sam Allardyce, two years since he last managed. I was reading an interesting piece by Craig Hope in the mail detailing what Sam's been doing in the in the meantime. And it's, you know, he, he's been uh, looking after his grandchildren. He's been on quite a lot of cruises, playing a bit of golf, going to quite a few restaurants. <laughs> um, is that a preparation for coming in and managing in the toughest league in the world? I mean, we'll, we'll find out in, in the weird reality show of the Premier League. It's going to be another interesting chapter. But a couple of things strike me about it straight off the bat. One is but Sam Allardyce is not necessarily, if you look at his track record, a guy that gets instant results. He's definitely a guy that gets results. But 
think back to Crystal Palace, where I think he went six games without winning. When he came in to do a similar firefighter job, he actually will change the way a team plays and build starting with nil nils and, and, and with keeping it tight at the back. There's quite a shift that has to take place, but he's only got four games to do it. And the other part of it is that January transfer window where Leeds are in the middle of a of a relegation battle. We could all see it. And Victor Orta, the sporting director, still going out and signing Ruta, you know, a 20-year-old Frenchman from the German league who's got immense promise but has only played a handful of games in his career. And it seemed like Victor Orta was the only person in football that didn't understand the situation leads when he was still trying to build for the long term while this short-term fight was going on. So there's been all sorts of disconnects. And as I say, the Premier League reality show has thrown up another interesting episode for that we're all going to watch over the next couple of weeks. Mm, well, it's a perfect storm in many ways, isn't it, Tony? When you think about it, the hangover from Bielsa, the ownership are looking to sell to the US. The fans are issuing no confidence votes. Key players like Meslier, the goalkeeper, they're struggling. There's no coherence, no continuity, no hope. Well, much as you sound deeply optimistic, Mike, uh, <laughs> with that with that litany of issues, I mean, there's always hope. But, uh, it doesn't look great at the moment, particularly as their next two games are uh, against Manchester City and Newcastle, which couldn't be two more daunting fixtures at the moment, probably in the Premier League. The Bielsa, let's start with the Bielsa hangover, which is, I mean, it's not the main reason that Leeds are in the mess they're in, but it hasn't helped. Kind of despite saying a lot of the right things when he came in, it definitely felt that Jesse Marsh was kind of operating under a permanent cloud of not being Bielsa for pretty much his entire reign. And it does feel that the kind of the shadow of Bielsa, we'll talk a bit about Brian Clough later maybe at Forest, but it does feel like the shadow of Bielsa and his achievements just remains cast firmly over the club and its fans. On the pitch... Johnny's already referred to kind of the recruitment policy in January, but they, it's worth remembering they lost Calvin Phillips and, and Rafinha in the summer, two of their key players, probably their two best players, to be honest. Phillips has been the heart of the team for a long period throughout the Bielsa reign. And he's been cited about as often as a dodo in Man City this season, hasn't he? Which Leeds fans would be frustrated about. And Rafinha was, was a stardust and he obviously went off to Barcelona. And yeah, they, they, they've spent money, haven't they? It's not, they, 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 I mean, they haven't, they haven't just sat on their laurels to a degree. They've signed players like Mark Rocker, Tyler Adams, Lewis Sinistera, all of whom came with decent reputations and, and simply haven't had the impact for whatever reason that, that many would have hoped for. And like you say, players who are currently there who have been the bedrock of, of what they've achieved the last couple of seasons. Ilan Melier in goal, who's still only 23. He's really, really struggling. And at the other end, Patrick Bamford has had injury and form issues all season. So you, you can see why they went into the market for a striker in January. You just don't really understand why they went into the market for the striker that they ended up <laughs> signing. So yeah, Perfect Storm probably does sum it up pretty nicely. And as for Sam Allardyce, I mean, you probably assume that Andrea Radrizzani has had a look at the impact that young, exciting managers like Roy Hodgson and Neil Warnock have had it at Crystal Palace and, and Huddersfield this season. Probably thought, well, it's our last throw of the dice. It's only going in one direction. Let's let's see what, what big Sam can do. But it's a hell of a big job, isn't it, for four games? It certainly is. And it, it does highlight, Johnny, a a wider issue in terms of this distortion of the accepted principles of ownership. It looks to me, with at the Leeds end anyway, they've got this interest from San Francisco. It's almost become, in football now, ownership solely a financial exercise. I suppose you've only got to look at the circus around the Manchester United sale to understand that. 
are we looking here at completely inadequate leadership, which has almost been feather bedded by the amount of guaranteed money that the Premier League guarantees? Yeah, I mean, I think we're probably looking at inadequate leadership in a sporting context because, as you sort of refer to, Mike, there's a there's now a disconnect where ownerships are not necessarily or hardly ever these days it feels in it for the sporting project, the sporting element. On the one hand, there's the people who are in it for whether it's sports washing or some sort of reputation burnishing some sort of monumental PR exercise. And then on the other hand, there's the venture capitalist build up the value, sell it on or sell bits of it and make a profit sort of model. And somewhere in the middle, you've got our sporting institutions trying to compete and entertain and, and win and do all the things that draw us as as, as, as supporters or, or whatever to the game. And we see a big disconnect and we see, we see, a more more of an awareness, I think, a more of a savviness among fan bases towards ownerships now. They're quite critical of ownerships. You hear sack the board or see signs saying sack the board a lot more than I it feels like you used to at games. So I, I think it's this this disconnect has created a a disquiet among football followers. But then that's got a funny knock on effect because that leaves owners feeling under more pressure, and that makes them press the sack the manager button. Or, sat, or in this case, sack the manager and sack the director of football. You know, I sack the different layers of management that I've put in their place to insulate myself, so that's never my fault. And and we've, I think we've, it feels like we've seen that at a number of clubs this season now, where the strategy from the top's been wrong, but the person that carries the can is the poor coach. And quite frankly, I can't see that pattern changing because going back to ownership, I, I think this kind of pattern towards either the the, the the venture capitalists or the the reputation washers is only continuing and and I think management's going to be interesting to hear Tony's thoughts given how many co- coaches he knows and talks to but I can only see this becoming more of a short term sadly profession yeah that's certainly the feedback that that I've been getting you know you, you hear of uh, and I've spoken about it before where you know, get some coaches who basically don't want to get involved in the madness mm. of first team football anymore. They're quite happy to do mm. development stuff. And I suppose an extension of that, Tony, is are we seeing almost the death of the true blue collar football club? Because I've always thought about Leeds, and actually we're going to talk about Forest in a minute, a club like that as well. There's almost a sort of, as I said, a distortion of the game going on here, isn't there? Or yeah. the game that we knew. Yeah, definitely. I'd probably throw Everton into that as well, couldn't you? Just just one one point on, on Johnny's point there is that we went in and filmed with the Arsenal Academy recently and we spent a bit of time with Per Mertesacker, who and we haven't actually published this interview yet, but we will do imminently. But he spoke quite openly about loving what he does as the head of the Academy Arsenal, developing players, developing coaches, and just being well and truly away from the absolute madness of first-team football, which he experienced briefly when he assisted Freddie Lundberg during his spell as, as interim manager at Arsenal. Frankly, he's got no interest in it. Now, he's an, he's an intelligent, thoughtful <laughs> and very insightful human being who has seen what first-team football in Premier League looks like and wants absolutely no part of it. Now, of course, he has the benefit of, of having had a very successful playing career. One would assume he doesn't necessarily need the finances that might come with 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 taking charge of Leeds for four games. That three million could buy an awful lot of pints of wine, by the way. Uh, and so yeah, so yeah, it, it, there are, I'm sure there are plenty of players. And um, you know, we think about coaches, uh, former players who are now coaches, people like 
Frank Lampard, Steven Gerrard, Patrick Vieira, maybe who you wonder how many more goes they're going to want at it before they decide that it's just not for them. That's whether they're good or not. That's irrelevant to this point. But back to your point about the blue collar clubs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at a club like Everton are a really interesting case, aren't they? They've come in with foreign ownership, have spent an inordinate amount of money over a period of time with giving that money to a whole bunch of different managers with very different philosophies. Allardyce was one of those, Carlo Ancelotti another. It's looking back now, it seems bewildering that someone like Ancelotti was even at Everton, but but it happened. But again, you you, you refer to the kind of sack the board placards that are appearing because now it suddenly looks like at a time when they're facing relegation have the gigantic task of a new stadium to put through. The club literally has no money. And they've been on the market as well. And so you've got you've got this situation where you've got these these huge institutions, but being run by people who aren't connected to the club or the area with, as Johnny says, a whole kind of bunch of people stood in between the owners and the fans to try and kind of take the blame or, or shield them. And then when that doesn't work, they get canned and more people come in. And and the disconnect that the fans feel towards those clubs is just growing and growing and growing. The irony about Nottingham Forest, of course, is that they've probably got one of the most combustible owners in the Premier League. And yet somehow the manager, despite being threatened by relegation all season, has somehow managed to keep his job uh, <laughs> at a time when nobody else has. But yeah, back to your point, I just think, yeah, I think... I think Football is going through something of an identity crisis. The relationship between the owners, the institutions and the fans looks as far apart as it ever has been. And like Johnny said, there's no obvious way that that looks like it's going to be reversed anytime soon. Mm. Well, pressure on managers has never been more acute. Steve Cooper has lived with uncertainty at Forest since promotion to the Premier League. Yet he's remaining true to his beliefs and the spirit of a distinctive club. So welcome, Steve. My first experience of European competition as a kid, as a rookie reporter, was the second season with Forrest winning it. Mm. It shows how old I am. But mm. the thing that strikes me when I go back to the club is it's retained the spirit of those days. Mm. How do you harness that spirit and how important is it when you're in a situation like you find yourself now? Well, firstly, I wasn't even one. <laughs> I knew you had to get that one in. No, I think I feel the same as you even before I joined here in terms of came here a couple of times with, with Swansea and had been here sort of scouting. And you do come into the city ground and feel that era straight away. And then when you enter the doors, then you, you see it, you know, on, on the walls and European Cups and all that sort of stuff. So, so I knew that before I joined and um, and then it, it hits you even even harder when you do join the, the football club in whatever capacity. And my sort of belief has been from coming through that this is a, an era that's, or that was an era that was that has built the football club really. And I think that, first of all, I think it should always be respected mm-hmm. and we should embrace what it stands for, be proud of it, represent it as best we can while knowing that um, it'd be great to create some new positive chapters and, and maybe an era. And, um, and that's certainly what we've tried to do since we've, we've been here. And I hope we, ha- we, we are doing that. We are representing that era because if, if, if that era never happened, then this club wouldn't be what it is. Mm. 
you know, just over your shoulder, there's a, a photograph of Brian Clough and mm. Peter Taylor with, with the European Cup. There was a wonderful simplicity to Cluffy, to his approach, yet he was a very complicated character, obviously. What can you learn from him and the way that he did his job and the way he galvanised this place? Well, not try and be him, I think, is, is, is the most important thing and um, or to me, but also to, OK, we've just talked about an era that has made the club what it is and there's no doubt that he was the, the real genius and the star. And it's, I don't think I've said this before, but I, I don't mind saying it, that I had studied a lot of... Mr. Clough's documentaries and stuff before I joined there. And I actually still watch them now quite fa fairly regular and certainly some parts of it, which I find really motivating, particularly now being here at the club. So, you know, we see John McGovern every, every day. We see Gary Bertels most weeks and there's lots of the guys that we've tried to really try and build a, a relationship with because we think they should be visible around, around the place. But when you do spend a bit of time with them, there's no doubt that you do hear about stories and then you're always looking to learn and and things like that so yeah i think i think what you've got to remember as well in in, in all all of the stuff that you hear you know it's an era where they won they won games and and that's now particularly in the situation we're in that is something that resonates more than anything is that there's lots of things that can get discussed but the thing that was constant through that time was that they won who were the great influences or influencers in your coaching career who were the coaches that you really resonated with um well I, i've never and i will never will try to be anybody else and, I, and, I, and i've learned that a lot this year to be honest because you come up against some some amazing coaches and so i never want to be anybody apart from myself because i think that you have to stay true to yourself and you have to be authentic what is coaching i think it's as much about leadership nowadays as much about self-awareness and understanding of the modern player, the modern environment, the modern world. So what makes a great coach, not saying that I am one, but I would like to be and I'm trying to be. I don't think it is obviously about football philosophy and training methodology and a multidisciplinary approach and all them sort of things. You have to be very, very clear in your ways on that. And I like to think that I am, although still evolving and building and a lot, lots and lots and lots to learn. But I've also learned, certainly through my time with England and then coming into first team football, that um, leadership and culture and how you treat people, how people treat you, if you don't get them things right, then it doesn't matter how good your next training exercise may be or game plan may be or what team you pick. Mm. You know, I think, I think coaching's a very holistic thing now. Yeah, because coaches from... A development background like yourself mm. they tend to be more people focused mm. you know because you're dealing with young immature players mm. especially that sort of under 15 16 level does that play a, a role in the culture that you're trying to create here you know you've used words like belief and trust mm. which are applicable across the board but obviously when you're in the situation you find yourself they are key aren't they yeah not just where we are i think you, you would you would ask the guys at the top end of the league as well. And it, it was the same. So I know we were in the Championship and not the Premier League, and they're two very different things. But they still would have been very appropriate words to use then because you're just playing for something and you have to be together. I just think, like, I'm just a big believer in, like, self-worth in people, mm. you know? And because I know when people have made me feel good about myself, I know that I've gone to the next level or I've, I've shown things 
that maybe I've not shown before and players that you work with or people that you work with feel the same. So, you know, I think like, listen, being a footballer, being a football coach at the level that we work at is obviously a privilege and we're very lucky and there's a lot of good things that may come with it, but it's also a very demanding mm. life and it can be a little bit harsh and nasty and there's all pros and cons to it and everybody's has feelings in all of that and I just want to with the players particularly want them to know that I'm with them and not against them and and I'm not e always the easiest guy in the world with them and I'm not always probably at times maybe a bit too demanding and want a bit more but I want to do that with the players knowing that when it comes to it that I'm absolutely with them and I've got their back and I don't want them worrying overall about what I think of them because there's lots of other people that are ready to criticise them and I don't want to worry about me. And that's just something that I think can help over the course of the time that you work with a team and a player. Mm. Because how big a culture shock is it managing in the Premier League? You know, I've spoken to the majority of the Premier League managers mm. and there is this universal acknowledgement that you have to almost like look beyond the noise or just mm. shut the noise out. Mm. Everything seems magnified, doesn't mm. it? It is. Yeah, it is. And... Um, I think that maybe a little bit of it with England because, because of some of the tournaments that we did and, and, and we were successful, got a little bit of a glimpse of it. And then certainly the two years at Swansea, I'm talking about my own because I never played at any level. That was my first experience of being part of a, a something where there was more than a handful of people having an interview and an, and an opinion. Um, so I got my first experience of, ooh, okay, you know, some things might get said here and whatever. And, and I just very early on sort of took the the rules to my myself of as you said just sort of blocking a lot of things out of my life really i've always been you know a bit of a family man and i've never been one for being too open and certainly now being a first team manager even more that way so so i don't really put myself in that position where I'm hearing too much. I know things will, will be said, good, bad and indifferent, and they have been over the few years that I've been doing it, but I try not to let it affect me. Mm. I just try, like I said, I want to be true to myself. If we are playing well and we're winning games, I, I feel the joy because of the players and what the supporters get. And if we're not, then I don't get the negative feelings because of what people may be saying about me. I get the negative feelings because the team, particularly this club that I love working for, does not get the results that they want. Mm. What do you find are the best coping strategies with something which is a sustained, it's, you know, it's a noise in the background, right? Because football clubs are organic things, they represent the people, that yeah. it, essentially it's a vessel for people's ambitions mm. and loves and everything else. Yeah. Especially at a club like this, mm. how do you escape that scrutiny? You know, where's your safe space? My suspicion, is it's out there on the training yeah, pitch. Definitely, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm very lucky that I've got a supportive family and, and supportive in some ways is people that, I wouldn't say not interested in, in what we do, but football's not their first love. My son's a bit different, but um, so that's good. Sometimes when I go home, it's uh, nothing really changes regardless of what's happened in the game. Believe it or not, I like my running and that's something that's always been something that can clear my head and can, I can make a few decisions and mm. think about how I want something maybe to look, what I might want the players to feel and see. It's, it's a, running's a good place for me, mentally. You're probably thinking now I should do a bit more of it, but uh, 
but no, I like, I like to get myself out and I don't take any music with me or anything. I just sort of get sort of lost in my mind a little bit when I go running. And I would recommend that to anybody that's maybe a little bit sort of overthinking things in, in work or life. I think activity is good. But I go back to really what I try and do is just stay true to myself and, and, and the way and what I believe in, mm. you know, and that's, that's how I want to treat the people I work with, or I believe the team should try and work, should try and play and, um, and never get too high when things are going well. And we've had a little bit of both, mm. you know, since my time here. And certainly not get too low when things are on a run like, like now, because I have learned about the concept of the shadow of the leader. That's something that I'm trying to live and breathe on a daily basis, and I believe in that anyway. Can you expand on that concept? Yeah, it's just like what you give off is, is what you want everybody else to try and be. And I think if I come through the door and angry, frustrated, complacent, you know, if you win three games, what we'd give for that, by the way, but if, <laughs> if you win three games that you, you become relaxed and things like that, I think that rubs off on, on everybody. And then if things are not going so well and you come in and everything's wrong and everything's should have done this better and it's your fault and all that sort of stuff, I think that, that rubs off as well. So I try and be consistent to myself and, um, and true to myself and think like, okay, what do I want the players to be? What do I want the staff to be? Well, role model it yourself as well. And uh, I don't think it keeps you too far from maybe the place that you should be in. Mm. Within your dressing room, there's a school of thought where you have maybe, I don't know, four or five senior pros who are the guys who basically mm. set the standards for the group. Yeah. Is that possible in your situation where, in essence, you've had 30 players who've mm. essentially been thrown together. Look, obviously, I'm oversimplifying that, but do you have to know the player? Do you, you know, and how long does it take you to get to know yeah. a player? Yeah, listen, I've said pretty openly that, um, and I don't say this as being a negative thing, but like, this has been my biggest coaching challenge huh. in over 20 years of, of full-time professional coaching. But a challenge doesn't mean it's, a like I said, a negative thing. It doesn't mean that it's uh, something that we can't overcome. And actually, trying to do something this year in succeeding in the circumstances of, of the new players and getting the, back to the Premier League and the injuries and things like that has become a massive motivation for me and a bigger... Because can, you can't compare some of the things that we've had to do this year with anything else before. But that doesn't mean that we can't succeed, you know? And, and, and like I said, I said to, you, to your colleagues in the press conferences now, the sort of challenge continues in that. And it's tough, don't get me wrong, but the challenge that we can definitely succeed in, and we're trying to do that. I think in terms of getting to know the players, I think, listen, utopia for me is when you are working with a group of players that know each other inside out. They know the staff inside out. We know everybody's individual motivations. We, we've got agreed goal setting objectives, and we're all sort of working towards that. That's where we want to be. And there's lots of other things as well that would go along with that. So there's no doubt that, that trying to do that this year has been tough, but it's been tough for the players. That's what you've got. I mean, you know, people always say to me, like, it must be tough for you. And, da, 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 and maybe, maybe it is, but I also think it's, it must be, it's more tough for the players because players have joined here. And normally when, when you join a new club, maybe, I don't know what, 80, 90, even more percent of the squad have been together over a course of time, particularly on a promotion. And you sort of join in what's already up and running and adding to it. Whereas we would have had loads of players come into the dressing room and the guys sitting either side of them and opposite them have in exactly the same boat. And that's what I mean about it being a unique situation. 
but it, it makes the, the whole challenge, you could say more difficult, but for me, more exciting and more mm. motivating to go, right, let's try and make this work. Yeah. But you're in a very lonely job, mm. and you know, all the guys say that. It's quite interesting to hear them talk about mentors or truth tellers, you know, people that they respect mm. who might not be involved in their day-to-day -day working lives. I know someone like Pep talked about uh, Manuel Astiate, mm. and he, he said, well, basically, he's my life coach. Yeah. Do you have anyone like that? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I do, yeah. Yeah, um, I was sort of lucky at the FA that, um, and I know you, you spent time there as well, Michael, that we did some different things in football. One of the things that we did was... Oh, I, I didn't, but um, it was with Dan Ashworth, Gareth, and, and I think particularly Dave Redding, who was head of mm. performance at the time, put in there in part of the multidisciplinary team was you'd have your physical coach, you'd have your analysts, you'd have your coaches. And what he added to the, to the holistic group was people and teams. And basically we, we'd have a member of staff that was a real expert in sort of leadership and culture and environment and, and helping that get delivered through the coach. And I got to work with somebody there that had a massive influence on me in terms of self-awareness, leadership, goal setting, could see things that maybe I, I, I wouldn't or the staff wouldn't, staff development, and sort of really introduced me to, into how important these things can be and managed to keep that going, you know? So not really into like naming names, but definitely you need people around you that, that give you a different perspective, mm. can challenge you, you know, not just put your arm around you and tell you that things are gonna be all right and you, no, I, I don't really respond that well to that. I don't like it, to be honest. I'd rather somebody tell me that I could do that better and you're falling short, or if maybe at times I need to pick myself up then to bloody pick myself up, you know, and get on with it. So yeah, no, I think that's that's important to have good people around you. And I've been, I've been really lucky that I've, I've always had good people that I can, I can call upon, some in football, and more importantly, people outside of football. Mm. It always, always strikes me that you're a long-term thinker in a short-term job. But given all that, as a final point, what's your vision for this club? Mm. You know, is it a blend of the past, mm. the present, and maybe the future? Yeah. I think, well, that, that's a hard question to answer because this football club, I think, is a little bit different. And it does capture the imagination of a lot of people in football. And they also asked me the question, Michael, when we are on the back end of too many winless games. Mm. I know that any sort of longer-term success on a football club is built on the short-term success of, of winning games because it's not only winning games, and we've had this over, the, over certainly last season and the good moments we've had this season, it ripples through the city. People have heard me say that this so many times. When the city ground's full and Mullikintai comes on before the game, you feel part of something bigger than a football team. Mm. You feel part of a city and a community and an outsider like me feels like like an honour really to be part of it and you know and all the things then with Trent Bridge and um, you know the cricket ground next door and people walk from the city and from from the surrounding sort of towns and villages you really do feel part of something greater than than yourself and I felt that from the, my my first game here was a home game and it was against Millwall we were bottom of the league and there were 25,000 people there and I just remember coming I've said this a few, like quite a few times I remember coming out of there thinking just imagine you can get get it going here in terms of winning games, and because you could just feel there's loads so much goodwill around the place. So it's it's an honour to be part of that, and I, I I just love it when we have that feeling. But to have that feeling, we need to win games because 
winning games here is more than the three points. Although I'm desperate for three points. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve, thanks. All the best for the short, Top medium one. and long term. Nice, Michael. Cheers, Top one. Thanks. See you, mate. Johnny, I found something very human about his insight into the pressure of the job and that image of him running and thinking. I thought that was great. But the question is, is decency and intelligence enough in modern management? Yeah, Steve Cooper's a, a, a good test case for that, Mike. I, I, I hope so would be the short answer. There is something deeply genuine and humble and, and I think... Uh, caring about Steve Cooper, you know, it strikes you how much he really cares for the job that he's in, really cares for the history, and it came through in, in, in the interview of the of the club he's representing, and actually also cares deeply for players, even players who've turned up five minutes ago to join the dressing room of already thirty five others, but he he cares on that human level. I found that fascinating that he was trying to put himself in the mind of those new signings that came in and trying to think what it, the dressing room might look like for them, which was a, a very human thing to do because he could quite easily as a manager sit there and be resentful of all these guys coming in on some level and say, look what I've, look at this challenge I've been given this. I don't want these guys, you know, why do I have to manage them? And we know we've seen so many managers who make examples of poor signings that they didn't want. So they put them on the bench to make a point to the ownership or to the fans. Whereas I found it really interesting that he was trying to think, what is it like for, I don't know, Renan Lodi when he arrives here? What What's it like for Serge Aurier? What can I do to try and help these guys? I would say Steve Cooper is a huge success, Forrest, and a huge success this season, whatever happens. So to go back to your question, I suppose, Mike, personally, in my terms, those values can be successful because he's embodying them. I, it's an, an amazing job that he's done, whatever happens from now. I hope it's recognised, and I think it is recognised, actually, from people who know the game properly, what he's done there. And and whatever happens, I think he'll go into another really decent job after this because of the work that he's he, he's done. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Tony, he talks about coaching in terms of leadership. He spoke about also the concept of the shadow of the leader. I'd not heard that before. It's intriguing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is, it is interesting. I mean, listening to it, I kind of interpreted it as, as an awareness, really, that kind of the way you behave has an impact on not just the, the mood and the morale of those around you, but also on their behaviours. I think traditionally we think of learned or inherited behaviours more within kind of family units, don't we? But but people in professional environments across any number of industries spend an awful lot of time together. And it's, so it's no stretch to, to understand that inherited behaviours can apply to those two. And football clubs definitely fit into that category. And although I guess, as discussed, the head coach isn't the only kind of leadership figure with, within a club, they are probably the most important when it comes to behavioural influence because they're the ones managing the players. What I found really interesting in that as well is that it's really interesting that he, he openly admits that he's not really one for wanting an arm around the shoulder and to be told that everything's going to be okay. Like he... As an individual, he wants to feel challenged and he wants to challenge his players as a result of that, but he wants to do it in a positive way and kind of in as positive as environment as possible. I'm not sure when you break it down, it's necessarily rocket science, but I think his awareness of his responsibility as a person as well as a coach, and this is, I hear this a lot from coaches that work at academies who are 
working to develop players through their teenage years when they talk about the people as much as the players. I think an awareness of this can only be a positive thing at a club like Forest when, as Johnny says, there are so many players coming in this season. I mean, I think when they signed so many players at the start of the season, I think we all thought that they'd be absolutely nailed on certs for relegation because you just can't integrate that. We've seen what's happened at Chelsea, higher up the table, well, not, not that much higher up the table anymore. <laughs> um, it strikes me as that Steve Cooper is a man with quite high emotional intelligence and that can only be a good thing in the absolute madness of a Premier League football club. Mm. What struck me, we spoke in his office at the training ground and it was full of photographs all along one window of Brian Clough, European Cup, Peter Taylor. You know, there was no hiding from the legacy of those years. If Brian Clough is still you know, omnipresent at that club, Johnny, you know, I feel it when I go there, I don't know about you. Mm. Does that tradition count for anything in modern football? Yeah, it, it is present. And it's one of the lovely things about visiting that, that, that forest training ground that you can you can sort of picture it without too much effort with a sort of, you know, 30, 40 years ago and Cluffy in his, in his element. And does it count for something? Steve Cooper wants it to count for something. And I think that powerful that he wants to harness that little thing that makes Forrest different and special and, and use it as a source rather than see it as something to be afraid of or a burden or, or an annoyance even and we all know the anecdotes, but one that springs to mind would be would be Doug Ellis taking the pictures of Villa's European Cup triumph down from the walls of Villa Park because he didn't, it wasn't his era, and he didn't want uh, he, <laughs> he didn't, didn't want didn't want that around. And a lot of people are like that, you know. They, but Steve, interestingly, I suppose, comes from he came from that England coaching setup of which Gareth Southgate was and still is integral. You know, they, they were very close to each other. Steve's career path with the under-17s, grew at the same time that, that Gareth was with the 21s and then with the senior team. And Gareth's got a very similar approach, actually, talking about the, the sort of heavy backpack that players can can wear with that England shirt, but using that as a source of inspiration and not as something to be afraid of. And I found Steve coming from exactly the same place with Cloughy and, and the Forest era. And interesting to hear him admit to you, Mike, that he watches Cloughy programmes mm-hmm. and he says it inspires me and that's brilliant isn't it that that's that's because mm. there's no way that Steve Cooper's ever trying to be Brian Clough you know not not at all he, but it's interesting that he would be watching that and and trying to draw little nuggets from it and and that's that's fantastic that's a very grown up way to 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 treat things i i think and he's a he's a proper grown up person Steve Cooper mm. well i suppose at some stage we've got to remove those rose tinted spectacles tony Bottom line is they've got to get results. Are they capable of doing so? And, you know, you look at the fixture list and the next game at home to Southampton is the proverbial must win, isn't it? It is. It's absolutely huge, isn't it? I think it's the, it's the last game of the round, isn't it, pretty much on, on Monday night. So if you assume that one of Leeds or Everton fail to win their respective games, both of which are very difficult, Leeds are at City and Everton are at Brighton, aren't they? It's just an absolutely golden chance to get out of the bottom three if and when that happens and suddenly their fate's back, they're in control of their own fate and trip to Chelsea the following Saturday offers an opportunity to put some distance between themselves and the bottom three. One, one caveat to that is their away record is absolutely dismal. I think they've, they, they have harnessed whatever it is about the city ground and the city of Nottingham 
Steve Cooper has definitely succeeded in harnessing that at home. Away, it's been a very different story. They've had one, one away win, which was at Southampton, I think. And I think their away form is probably encapsulated by snatching defeat from the jaws of victory against Brentford last weekend. So yeah, it, Monday is a huge game. I would expect them to win it. I think they've got some... Yeah, Morgan Gibbs-White has been absolutely superb for them in this recent run. I think he's just been a real success this season. And they hope he'd have the quality and the team would have the quality to, to get that win against Southampton, which would probably condemn Southampton to, to relegation wouldn't it, in all reality. But um, yeah, massive game, massive. Mm. And I agree with you about Southampton there, Tony. It does look pretty bleak for them. So we're looking presumably at two from four, maybe even five if West Ham implode. Johnny, what lessons do you think can be drawn from Bournemouth? You know, you seem very impressed when you met Gary O'Neill last week. You know, I love that line about grabbing every centimetre. I think you've been watching Al Pacino in <laughs> any given Sunday, hasn't he? You know, the, the game of inches thing. I suppose we can assume they're safe after winning six out of nine. The underlying truth basically beat the teams around you. Well, yeah, but I mean, Bournemouth have beaten Liverpool, haven't they, the, in, in, in this run? I think Bournemouth have given everyone a game except that strange match, strange in their terms, against West Ham, which, you know, I said to Gary, has it been a game this season where it didn't look like you want? And he said that was pretty much the only one. I, I think in, in some ways there's no rocket science to be gleaned from, from Gary O'Neill, and yet in the other sense that, that, that you could... I think people could learn a lot. I mean, he's using all his experience as a player, which is quite unique, I think, when you think he had 21 managers in a playing career of about eight clubs, but all clubs round about the same sort of level of of kind of almost top of the championship, bottom of the Premier League. And, you know, some a gallery of 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 the old English cook from Tony Poulos to Sam Allardyce to Gareth Southgate in his first job. But Gary seems to have taken all those, all that experience and the number of times he sat in the dressing room as a player and saw a new manager arrive or, or someone with a different voice and has, has, has gleaned from it. And I talked earlier about that idea of trying to put yourself in the player's position and try and see what they see when a manager stands up and talks. And Gary definitely does that. He's, you know, he talked a lot to me about trying to give players exactly the information that they want, trying to put them on the he said I try and put them on the pitch before they they play the game by getting into the psychology of what the other team is going to be thinking or the psychology of what the crowd's going to be thinking, whatever. Real again emotional intelligence to use that that kind of word. And then just hard work. I mean, there's a laser-like focus to to Gary O'Neill. There's a real energy. I mean, we you remember him as a player, he never stopped running and he's kind of still got that air about him. There's a real energy to him as a person where he's just, you can see he's a guy that's putting in 100% all the time to every single interaction, every single aspect. He fiercely preps. When he when he was a pundit, he used to go on Y-Scout and, and scout the teams that he was going to be giving 30-second soundbites on, but he wanted those soundbites to be brilliant. So he, he he did all the work. And you could see that the work he puts in in the opposition, the one-to-one -one work with players like Dominic Solanke and Philip Billing, He's just a guy with a ferocious work ethic and a lot of empathy and leadership, I suppose, as well. The, the shadow of the leader, if, if his his shadow would be positive and relentless. I think one thing I'd add about Gary, that I mean, that's an incredible insight from Johnny. Brilliant. Great to hear, actually. But 
he's also he was only there for five minutes, but he did spend a few time with a bit of time at the Liverpool Academy, which has been a breeding ground in recent times. Steve Cooper was there before. Neil Critchley's had a bad run, but was brilliant at Blackpool. Obviously, Michael Beale, who's now at Rangers. So I, I think it's the kind of place where you, you don't get let in unless you show a huge amount of potential as a coach. And now he's ended up in a first team job much quicker than I thought he would have expected. But He's grabbed it and he really does look the part. I mean, I, I've been hugely impressed with him. And actually, just, just to go back to the point about winning, being the teams around you, they've had 11 wins in the league this season, seven of which have been against teams below them in the table. But yeah, that, that, that brilliant home win over Liverpool, which was pained me to watch, but and it, was, it was a deserved win. They, they, were, they were the better team and controlled the game against a team that had been United 7-0 the week before and that dramatic win at Tottenham. You can see the impact that he's had on the team, and you're right. Like Solanke, Billing, Lerma, like this is a this is a core set of players who he has definitely improved, as well as the team. It's it's been so impressive. I mean, in a way, has he been operating under under a freebie? Because ev- literally everyone, apart from probably him, expected them to go down, didn't they? But <laughs> my God, what a job! Yeah, very impressive. Mm. Meanwhile. The situation is such that, that teams are almost conspiring to cut one another's throats. You, you think back, Johnny, if we could, to Monday night. Everton and Leicester, they drew in a pretty schizophrenic sort of game. Who came out best out of that, or did they both lose? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head, mate. And, and previously, Leicester had a very similar game against Leeds, but I'm not sure who came out best from that either. And... Going into this run, I think I was looking at all those clashes between the relegation-threatened teams and saying, oh, they'll be decisive. And actually, now half of them have played. I don't, I don't think they've decided <laughs> anything. I, I feel Leicester needed to win one of those two games against Leeds and, and, and Everton because it's Fulham next and then they've got a very difficult run. I then also think that none of the teams around them have really capitalised and you could flip it and say the same of Everton because they've got they've got a couple of really difficult games before a sort of more benign finish. They could have done with winning one of the two games, but then it hasn't cost them too much. They seem to come out of the game with a bit more, I would say, energy, if that's the right word, or, or a bit more positivity, I think because they created a lot and they pressured Leicester a lot. And when you do that in a way in an away game, I think that there's quite a powerful feeling that you've done all right. And maybe the home team is a bit more disappointed. But that said, because of the standard of Everson saves and and the emotional roller coaster Leicester won, they they came out also feeling sort of slightly buoyed. So, I'm giving you a long answer, I say I just don't know, Mike. No idea. What's <laughs> no idea what's happening with it. No, no, it's, it is it is uh, unpredictable to say the least. With Everton, Tony, at least I thought there were signs of momentum, especially offensively. We know. It's almost become a cliche that to say, well, Sean Dyche understands the, the territory. Those last two games, at Wolves, then home to Bournemouth, do they create the potential for the great escape? Yeah, they do. I mean, I'm, I'm going to give you an equally long answer Johnny just did without giving you any insight at all. I mean, <laughs> the thing, so, so Everton, against Leicester, Everton were overall with with a better team weren't they they created loads of chances they got 90 minutes out of Dominic Calvert-Lewin which can only be taken as a huge positive assuming that that goes on to a few more 90 minutes and that he takes the chances one of which he absolutely guffed against against Leicester Seamus Coleman's injury doesn't do them any favours and I just I, I, I completely missed this at the time but Coleman's departure was the only substitute that Dyche made in that game which 
either smacks of, I like the way this is going and I think we can win it with these 11, or I don't have much faith in what I've got on the bench or, or a little bit of both. So, but again, they didn't win the game. <laughs> and, mm. you know, they, one of, at some point, all these teams under threat are going to have, well, maybe none of them will win a game again, actually. Not, Forest Southampton, I think, is the only game now where two of the bottom five are, are playing each other. So who knows how many points it will take them to, to stay up. And you'd think that if Everton do go into those last two games against Wolves and Bournemouth, both of whom mathematically will probably be safe by then, you would assume, then it does have the ingredients of kind of two good results or two results that they need to get to, to stay up. Well, I just, I don't know. We, we, I, was on, I was on this a couple months ago, Mike. We were talking about Daesh and I think we said at the time, there's absolutely no way Everton are going to go down. But here we are and they're still under real pressure. They've had... I mean, I don't know, even that, that home defeat against Fulham, who looked like at that point they were already on the beach, was an absolutely terrible result and a just dreadful performance. <laughs> so, like, we're, we're talking about, you know, we've been talking for months about Sean Dyche getting the results he needs, and I still think he probably will, but I'm kind of surprised they, they, they are where they are and that he hasn't already turned it around. And at the moment, he looks like he's got as big a job in the next four games as, as some other lights would have at Leeds. The smart money is probably on them staying up, but they're in the bottom three at the moment. They're going to have to win something to get out of there. Mm. Well, Johnny, Tony said there, talked about certain clubs never winning a game again. That brings us quite neatly to Chelsea, doesn't it? <laughs> um, what do you make of what's going on there? The, the implosion in terms of, you know, there are no tactics, it seems to me. You've got no pride, no professionalism. And... You've got, in the middle of this, Frank Lampard. I just can't see how anyone is ever going to give him another job after this. No, um, Frank looks like he's sinking, and he looks like he knows it, actually. Just watching his... You know, we know Frank to be a, a, a calm and, and rational, intelligent, mm. and uh, you know, guy, relaxed, but he looks embattled, he looks under pressure, he looks... It looks, just looks like a man who thinks, what am I doing here? Why did I do this? And I feel I do feel for him because ultimately he's a bloke that answered the call of the, the club that he, he felt a lot of love for. Uh, obviously, there's something in it for him as well, but but he 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 also there was a lot of, sort of trying to do duty for Chelsea and it really hasn't worked for him. What's that now? Six defeats in a row for him? Yeah. As yeah. as as a manager. Well, I think I think it's ten consecutive defeats as a manager, and he's only had one win in his last twenty games. One win in twenty games. And he's only had Chelsea only scored two goals under him. Something um, like that, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I was watching this post match interview after Arsenal and, and trying to I think as we all do, try to decode it. What what's the manager really saying here? And I found it interesting that he he was cho- you could see a man you could see him choosing his words and he was talking about the question of whether his players cared or not and he was careful to say no they do care but they have to understand what caring means and you think ah oh, okay what's he saying now and and he he was talking about caring is something that you show every day and not just on match days and then he talked about Noni Madueke and said well look. He played tonight as he's been training and he'll get more chances because of that. And I from all of that, I think what you what you're really hearing is, you know, behind the scenes training at the stuff around match days. And it's not a surprise, is a bit shambolic at the moment and doesn't sound like it's serious enough. It doesn't sound like there's there's any spirit, it doesn't sound like there's any focus. And and as I say, is it a surprise when when 
all these players have been thrown together with no emotional buy-in, no pattern, no plan to to meld them together and, and managers changing. We could have told the Americans in charge that this would happen, you know, but clearly they thought they had the answer and they're finding learning the hard way. And Chelsea fans are, are also learning the hard way that money doesn't, in fact, not that money doesn't buy you everything. Money can buy you nothing if you're not careful. Mm, mm, yeah, it can make things worse, can't it? And and in that context, Tony, do you understand why it's taking an inordinate amount of time to appoint Mauricio Pochettino, if that is the grand scheme of things? Because um, he must look at that and think, I don't want to go anywhere near that. Yeah, although kind of in a strange way, it becomes now the kind of project that he that might appeal to him after his kind of PSG experience, and the cloud that so many Chelsea managers have arrived and left under is one of previous achievement. You know, they've 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 had this ridiculous turnover of managers for you know fifteen seasons or whatever over a period where they've won everything. <laughs> they just they <laughs> the really odd thing about Chelsea is that they just kept getting rid of managers, they kept imploding, and they kept winning. That was the template. And in a strange way, much like going back to the start of this chat when Johnny referred to the mad integrity of Watford, it was almost the same at Chelsea. Wasn't it? <laughs> continue to sack managers, continue to win things. Well, that's absolutely fallen apart this season, hasn't it? And in, in a strange way, maybe Pochettino is he thinks, well, actually, I'm coming in at there. It, it cannot get any worse. He is a much better coach than Frank Lampard. I don't think anyone would really doubt that on the on the evidence of what we've seen from their two respective careers, one significantly longer than the other. He has a pedigree at bringing together a club that is, is underachieving and, and, and players who are underachieving to develop something, to build something. And again, possibly from a, from a PR point of view, they just want to get this season out of the way and, and appoint Pochettino in a way that is not in any way connected with the shambles of this season. So he has a clean slate from the end of May, the start of June and, and go and do your business. Um, Chelsea's history in the last 20 years suggests that Pochettino isn't a natural fit. Pochettino's history in the last 10 years suggests that he's not a natural fit, but it simply cannot get any worse than how <laughs> it currently is. And maybe that's the backdrop against which Pochettino will start, which maybe isn't a bad thing for him. Yeah. Well, I suppose the subtext of this entire episode has been you know, the pressure on modern managers. And so, chaps, I'd like to end on Jurgen Klopp. What do you make of what's going on? He seems to have been frantically covering his tracks, shall we put it like that, in terms of he obviously knows he's going to get a big punishment from the FA. What did you make of it all, Johnny? I'm quite disquieted by it, to be honest, Mike. He has been trying to cover his tracks by sort of saying, stop me short of an apology, actually, to Paul Tierney, but, but saying, well, I shouldn't have behaved like that, you know, Maybe I need to learn to 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 keep the emotions in check. Blah blah blah. I didn't really mean to say that he was deliberately making decisions against us. It's just that we've got a history. I I, I found those apologies a little bit mealy mouthed, and I think we all, any of us with experience of of, sort of social media ages, once you let the genie out of the bottle, once you set the dogs running or whatever metaphor you want to say, it takes on a life of its own. And I feel that he set the dogs running a little bit on on Paul Tierney and on refereeing integrity by saying that because by saying what he had said originally because it, it, you just need to look at, at, at Liverpool Twitter and there's there's plenty of fans going on about conspiracies against them and you can't really retract that once once your leader lets that out 
big Jurgen Klopp fan as I am, if he has a weak spot, it is how he behaves towards officials sometimes. And I don't think this was his finest hour. Mm. It's your club, Tony. What did you make of it all? Yeah, I agree with that largely. I find, I've always found it odd when in moments of triumph, people react negatively towards others. You know, I think that was a hugely emotional game at the weekend in the battle for fifth place. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, And obviously, I I think, you know, a lot of Klopp's frustration this season will have been born out of watching this team, (laughs) which implosion's too strong a word, but there has been a a definite collapse of sorts in the kind of the intensity of of what that team has brought for so many seasons and many of those players have brought. And I think... You know, he's not a good loser. No no coach at that top level is. But I think in a season where, you know, particularly someone like Graham Potter has spoken openly about his own emotions on the touchline and what, what do fans want, what do people want? What, you know, on one hand, you want me to be respectful and calm. On the other hand, you want me to be the complete opposite. I think there has been a focus on managerial behaviour. Mikhail Arteta, another one. And, and these people, we, we want to see them passionate. But I don't see why when Liverpool scored a winner in the 94th minute why Jurgen Klopp wasn't running on the pitch to hug Jota or to get, might get a ban for that as well, or, you know, hugging pet blinders, or I don't know why he's running towards the fourth official, regardless of what he believes Paul Tierney has done throughout the game or throughout previous Liverpool games. I just find it a really odd and disappointing reaction. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. He will, he will definitely get a punishment of sorts. I have no idea what it might be, but uh, whatever it is, I think it'll be deserved. That's true. But it suits some, doesn't it, to portray Jurgen Klopp as a paranoid, out-of-control figure. But this doesn't boil down to one man. Let's face it, intimidation of officials is institutionalised, whether clubs want to admit it or not. Referees don't help themselves through a lack of transparency. But let's remember, actions have consequences. 380 players and coaches were banned for attacking or threatening grassroots referees last season. This whole saga is representative of a game that's overheating. That's why we should value incisive, experienced observers like Johnny and Tony. Thanks to them and to Steve Cooper. He's one of the good guys. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.